Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Reynolds Fiennes. Who was Reynolds Fiennes? Well, if you squint your eyes, he appears like a somewhat contemporary, Doc Savage-esque polymath with multiple skills, careers, and avenues of fame. He's most widely known as an explorer, having traveled the globe without the use of a plane, among other titles. He's also an author, a photographer, and all-around crazy person, and a domestic terrorist of sorts. But we'll get into that. One, the boy who walked across Antarctica. Ranulph Twizzleton Wickham Fines the third was oh, born. Fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> what? Come on. That's his fucking name, dude. That's his name, dude. I didn't make it up. These fucking Welsh bastards. To be fair, that does sound like a name I would make up, but I, that's not. That's his real name. Twizzleton. Twizzleton? Yeah, Twizzleton Wickham Fines, yeah. British and Welsh people, they're just like, oh, let's just like name them something fucking weird. They're just amusing themselves when they name their kids. Yeah. The Welsh language in general is pretty intense. You know, when I was when yeah. I was in Wales, the the street signs like, yeah, it was intense. I was like, fuck, I'm, I hope I don't have to say this to someone because I don't want to in, in, I don't want to like offend somebody by mispronouncing their language. But I have no idea how to pronounce yeah, this yeah, it's, fucking it's re- name. Yeah, it's really counterintuitive to like the american tongue to say the words like out of out of like any language i've ever seen like i just don't even know how to fucking say it my first introduction to welsh or just like the welsh language or the fact that welsh people existed i guess was this welsh band called super furry animals for a while i just thought they were british but then the lead singer put out an entirely welsh album and i listened to it and i was just like what the fuck is this language i can't even say these words i've heard them said and i can't repeat them yeah, I mean, even his name, it, it to me, I want to pronounce it Ranulf Twizzleton Wykeham Fines. Ranulf Twizzleton Wickham Fines III was born on March 3rd, 1944 in Windsor, Berkshire. However, the arrival of this young, purportedly cooing baby boy to a family, family. family populated exclusively by sisters would be only a happy sight for an exceedingly short amount of time. Around when he was four months old, Ranulf's father, Lieutenant Colonel Senior Ranulf Twizzleton Wickham Fines, died by a German anti-personnel S-class mine. He was taken to Naples for emergency medical assistance, but ultimately succumbed to his injuries. Seeking stability for this young family, Ranulph's mother, Julia Ann, moved them to South Africa, where he lived until he was 12. We're just going to play the beginning of this interview section. Good evening and welcome to this Fern Online event. A warm welcome if you are joining us live on the 6th of September. If you're joining us on demand in the next 48 hours, we hope you enjoy the show. I'm joined this evening by the world's greatest living explorer and the man known as Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know. So Ranulph Fiennes. So you mentioned in the book that you grew up in South Africa. 
How did that come about and how did it affect your life after you moved back to the UK? My granddad was the second son of eight children and there was a family castle that they'd been in for hundreds of years. And if you weren't the eldest son, then you had nothing. You had a choice of going to the army or a priest or the colonies. And granddad, the number two, decided he'd heard about the gold rush, so he went to the Yukon, couldn't find gold, so he became a trapper, wasn't good at catching fur, and therefore he joined the Mounties. And after becoming a corporal, he had enough money to go on a ship to South Africa. And when he got down there, he was with his old friend and neighbour, Winston Churchill, before Winston Churchill was known about, and they fought in the Boer War. And he then joined Cecil Rhodes down in the Cape Town area and was made a boss of the South African police. And at one point, Cecil Rhodes had him attacking Mozambique with some police. And on the border, they had a fracas. But the Brits, who knew everything and had a 300-year peace treaty of friendship with the Portuguese, were not happy. So they sent official Brits out to stop Cecil Rhodes and my granddad doing what they were doing, and he was chucked out. But in Cape Town, he happened to meet a very lovely South African lady who had money, my grandmum, and they got married. And that was how we got a first South African connection. But then during the Second World War, my dad was killed about four months before I was born. And granddad was dead soon after that. So my granny wanted to go back to South Africa to die in her 80s back out there. So she took my mum, who was, of course, widowed, and my sisters and me, aged one, out to South Africa. And when she did die, some 10 years later, and I was about 11 years old, mum naturally wanted to bring the family back to England. Randall finds looks, sounds, and carries himself like he just speaks in racism. You get the picture that he's like, I don't understand why there's any debate. All lives matter. He looks like he's ranted about how there's no apartheid happening in South Africa many times. What he really looks like is he looks like someone who, when there is like a niece or nephew who comes out as trans, he refuses not to dead name them. He like goes out of his way to do it where it's not just like, oh, I'm doing this on accident or like I, I'm just like yeah. old fashioned, but like I'm purposely like, hello, my nephew. By the way, George, how are you, George? What we're saying is that he's just fucking Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood. Yeah, That's- yeah, yeah. He is. He he <laughs> has. Uh, I've landed my boy. I'm finished dead naming you. We're going to get into more of his physical appearance and talk more about this guy's general vibe in a second. As Renolf entered young adulthood, he enlisted and served in the British Army from 1963 to 71. And he got transferred into a tank department for a while. And then he got transferred into like the special air services for a while. And then the demolitions expert for a while. And he got stationed all over the place. You know, he has this kind of like interesting military record where he travels around. And, you know, reading between the lines of his biography, I think he first started getting the exploration or travel bug when he was in the military because he got to travel around, see all this stuff. And also he would like go on trips with his military buddies where they would be like, let's go white rudder rafting. And then they would all get in a fucking boat and do the thing and then be like, we are now men. We have rafted together, you know? And so that's, I think he gets a lot of his initial kind of 
calling it wanderlust isn't accurate because I don't think normal humans have the emotion or the drive to do what Renel finds does. But he gets like an inkling of the idea of like, oh, maybe I'm going to go like do these crazy physical feats. So, Spandrew, we got some photos of Mr. Fines here. You want to you want to describe a couple of these and we can talk about them? Yeah, I mean, Renel Fines, he looks like the character in a movie where it's kind of like a legacy film where there's some kind of character and then they have like a dad who was the thing before them, like some famous explorer or adventurer or whatever. And then like there's some long lost grandpa or like some famous explorer that they idolize. And then like halfway through the movie on their adventure, they run into him and they're like, oh, my God, it's you. And then he turns out to just be like an idiot drunk. So you're saying he's old man Spock from Star Trek 11 if Spock sucked. Not that far off. Yeah, I would describe him as Clark Savage Sr., meaning Doc Savage's dad who maroons him on the island and forces him to try and live up to the legacy of being the world's greatest scientist. Renal Fiennes is a Caucasian man, about six feet tall, with a long, very English-looking face, bushy white eyebrows, and he always is scowling in photos. He looks kind of like poor man's Werner Herzog. Looks like, like his vote for Brexit counted six times. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. He due, definitely voted to leave. Due to my social casting, my vote counts as seven votes. So we got a couple photos here. We got a photo of him here from the cover of his book, mad bad and dangerous to know where he's like standing in the snow wearing Gore-Tex and wearing kind of adventure gear and then we've got a self-portrait that he took while he was in Antarctica where he's wearing 70s Gore-Tex and kind of fur accoutrement this was like when they were like all right now a silly one yeah 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 where he's not scowling he's just looking serious his version of like sticking his tongue out is just serious the best part of this to me though is that he's wearing glasses with a nose shield it's like to keep his nose from freezing off he has a man in the iron mask style wind buffer attached to the front of like 70s glasses that he has to have made and he's got snow like all over his face like he just fell in the snow face planted got up and was like take the silly one you requested and then, a silly uh, one earlier i Flatly refused, but now I am giving permission to take the silly one. And now we have this last photo here, which is a professional portrait of him. That's like, you know, the, the portrait that goes on the back of a book. He's wearing a brown three-piece suit, looking serious. His hands are in his pockets and his legs are crossed. But if you noticed, his hands aren't fully in his pockets. He's just tucked his fingers into his pockets. <laughs> He's not putting his whole hand in there. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> Out on the tundra, we've learned to tuck our fingers because we want to keep the extremities from getting frostbite. But you always need your palms in a good rastabout. <laughs> well, spoiler alert, he definitely loses some fingers. Keep I will your say palms that... ready for your next rastabout. That's what my father always taught me, and I've always kept that close to the hip. Oh, interesting. Renolf, I thought your father died when you were four months old, which gives you like a weird masculinity complex, which is why you spent your entire life proving your masculinity by crossing the earth. Yes, all correct, my boy. But also I have a photographic memory and I remember the moment of my birth 
And it was what my father said to me in my first four months as he carried me. He just gave me instructions about how to fight in the tundra. And I remembered them all. Copy that. Copy that. I remember my father talking to me at four months old. And he was giving me advice on exploring and fighting in the tundra. The tundra must be tamed. Those savages must be tamed. I mean, wait, that's not so appropriate to say anymore. I mean, we must help them to see the way. I don't think that our boy Renolf Vines would self-censor in that way. No, he wouldn't. But I, in my more sympathetic portrayal of him in the biopic that we're making right now, want him to be slightly less bigoted so that we don't get cancelled. Renolf Fiennes has said you can't say anything more at least once a day for the last seven years. Renolf Fiennes has said jokes aren't even funny anymore. You can't make jokes anymore at least once an hour for the past three weeks. Once an hour, that's that's intense. Ginny, Ginny, look at this stand-up comedian, this Joe Rogan. He's really got it. <laughs> he, just, he just gets really into the Joe Rogan experience. Ginny, Ginny, come down here. Look at this, look at this. Have you seen this website? The Daily Wire? Ginny, Ginny, come here, come here. Have you ever heard of Andrew Tate and the Hustlers University? This might be a good investment for us. As if these accomplishments weren't crazy enough, Randolph spent the last two years of his career in the military assigned to the army of the Sultan of Oman. He worked there fighting a growing communist insurgency propped up by South Yemen. So you've finally left the military, you finished retreating from the Russians in Germany, uh, you've finished in the SAS, you've finished the Oman campaign. What could possibly come after that? So when I left the Oman, because uh, my time of eight years maximum from Mons Cadet School, I hadn't been to Sandhurst, you're out, that's it. Eight years is your lot. So I got married to the, the, the girl, my childhood sweetheart, uh, Jenny, who I'd met when we came to England. She was next door neighbor. And um, her father didn't like me. He called me mad, bad, and dangerous to know, which is why we called the book that. And uh, now that I've got a 14-year-old daughter, I understand him not <laughs> wanting someone after his 13-year-old daughter. But Jenny and I eventually married when I got back from the army. And we had no money. She just worked for the Scottish National Trust way up in Northern Scotland. And uh, I had a little bit of money from the Territorial Army. I rejoined the SAS, who had thrown me out some six years previously, but I was not allowed in as an officer, so I had to join them as a corporal. I took the selection course again, passed it full second time, and uh, yeah, so I joined them for a year. They're called Reserve Squadron, and they're in Hereford, and they were the only TA that actually could replace regulars who got sick or ill or something at the time. So I got paid not very much for that because they wouldn't make me a captain, even though I'd been a captain in the regulars. So Ginny and I struggled and we decided that because in the German army situation, I had always taken the Scots Grey soldiers canoeing and climbing, it's called adventure training. But in those days, the taxpayer paid for it with the army. With Ginny doing expeditions, they didn't. But she decided what we could do was to follow a climber called Chris Bonington, who had been an, a tank officer like me, but he'd made his climbing into a profession. Well, why couldn't we do that? His was climbing, which I didn't like, but basically um, we could do other things. Maybe vertical things are out with vertigo. Horizontal things, because 
Antarctica, when you get up to 12,000 feet, it's one great flat, uh, huge thing bigger than America, basically, and never crossed unsupported, for instance. And the other end of the world, the Arctic Ocean up north, it's the sea, it's ice, it's flat, so you don't get vertigo. So we decided we would go for trying to do polar expeditions. Kind of an interesting little detail that the person who's considered the greatest living explorer was just like, but I can't go up. It's interesting because is he an explorer? Yes. Has he discovered things? 100%. Has he done things that no one else has done? Absolutely. I'm not trying to take that away from this guy. This is one time where kayfabe is not applicable. Like this dude has done the shit. But I would say that there's something of an interesting distinction to be made between someone who sets out to discover things and someone who sets out to achieve physical records and feats. Because that's kind of what he's doing. He's really out here like breaking records repeatedly by doing insane shit, which is not necessarily discovering things that are undiscovered. That's a component of it because no one's really been there, but we know what's there. It's like, I'm going to take a boat up the Nile. I'm going to I'm going to travel the entire length of the Nile on a boat. I'm going to go and do this really dangerous fjord in Norway. I'm going to go and I'm going to walk across Antarctica. You know what I mean? Like all of these things that are fucking crazy, but we know where the places are. It's just stupid to do the things he's doing, you know, which is why no one does it, because it's like a death sentence. And he does it and survives, which is wild. My name is Renal Fines, and this is Jackass. Yeah. yeah. The other interesting thing there, too, is I don't know if you picked up on the numerical age that his wife was when they met. I was going to bring that up. I forgot. But I heard the numerical age of his wife. But then I, I didn't know if I caught what his age was supposedly at the time. They met when he was 13 and then he went into the military. And I think in England or in the UK, I think the age is different. I think it's like 17 or 16, somewhere in there. So 16, 17, 18. He's somewhere in that range when she's 13. He goes into the military for eight years, comes out. So he's probably, you know, whatever. If he's, let's just say he's 18 when he goes in. Eight years is 26, right? So he's 26 and she's just turned 21, which isn't that big a difference. But also it kind of is weird. But also it was the 1960s. 26 to 21 isn't that weird, but even as a 17-year-old, to be like, I'm romantically interested in this 13-year-old is very strange. Even though the age gap is the same between the two. As a teenager, being romantically interested in, like, a small child is very strange. So what does that mean? Does that mean you have, like, a supreme connection with a 13-year-old? Or does that mean because it's the 1960s and it's very hard to meet people and you're from a smaller place in a more rural area, there's only so many prospects. So I guess you're just like, all right, well, I guess it's you. You're the only one here that's in a remotely applicable age range. What is that deal? Also, their relationship is very fascinating to me because she is just as involved in all of this stuff but doesn't get talked about for reasons that we'll get into later. She is the Roz Kirby to his Jack Kirby 100%, if not more so, because it's her idea to start the adventure business thing. It's her idea to be like, hey, your friend does these trips where he like scales mountains and shit. 
what if we did that but horizontally because I don't want to fucking climb. You know what I mean? And she's the one who comes up with the way that they're going to fund it. So the way that they figure out how to do this is they realize if they want to start this business of traveling the globe and doing these expeditions, they need money. The way to get money, because no one's just going to pay you to travel, is to get sponsorships from companies. The way to get sponsorships from companies is to get publicity. And the way to get publicity is to break world records. They make this big list of all these things that they could do. And they decide that one of the records that's like really like, ooh, is to walk across Antarctica because no one's ever done it. It's like most of the cool records have already been broken. So they, they start with the Antarctica record. And then they're like, that feels like starting at a level 10. So how do we figure out a situation where we could build that into something else so we could get enough money based off of the easy accomplishments of doing other things in order to have that be the crescendo, which would buy us enough time to train in cold places in order to get the skills to cross Antarctica on foot. So they decide, well, we could attempt to break the world record for traveling the entire globe with no flying. So they're like, all right, that doesn't mean we have to walk the whole world. We can use boats and we can use vehicles. We just can't fly. So what they do, and specifically what she does, is they spend seven years planning this. All of this logistical stuff of like they're on a boat crossing the ocean and then the boat docks on the coast of Africa. They get off and they get in vehicles. They drive across the Sahara Desert, meet them on the other side of the continent. Then the boat, while they're traveling through the middle of Africa, through all the countries, the boat goes around the entire length of Africa, meets them on the other side. They drive onto the boat. The boat then keeps going, you know, like they're fully figuring out how they go from one end of the earth to the other with no flying. And it's majority her. She's the one doing it. Listen, I, I totally understand this part because I've realized this last couple of times that we've gone to Disneyland that. You go to Disneyland and you spend the whole day there and you have kids and you're just kind of flying blind. And I feel like you only end up getting to go on like seven rides. And so I've been like, the next time we go to Disneyland, I got to like plan this shit out. I got to map out this route. I got to Lewis and Clark this shit. And so I'm, I've been putting together this, this itinerary of like, you go here, you hit this thing, you go here. You eat at this time. You go to this place. I'm just saying, like, I'm a kindred spirit to these adventurers. <laughs> yeah, you totally know the the physical toll of walking across Antarctica because you've been to Disneyland. Basically, they have the Matterhorn. Yeah, it's got painted snow on it. So they spent seven years planning and training for this situation, right? And what they do in that time is they get 1,900 sponsorship companies to give them the amount of money that they need to do this. And the way that they train is they organize little sample expeditions because they announced they were doing this, got all this publicity, all these companies signed up. And then all these people came forward and were like, we want to travel with you. We want to fucking be adventurers too. And our boy Renolf was like, mm, I don't think you've got it, kid. So we're going to do trial expeditions where we're going to do these things that are very difficult and see if you can keep up. So the first thing they do is they went to a Norwegian glacier, the Janestalbrin glacier, and they got like negative 25 degrees there. And at this point in time, because this is the 70s, 
They don't have Gore-Tex. So they're doing this in wolf skin clothing. How crazy is that shit? You see, you seem not as impressed as I was. I was like, you're doing this in wolf skins? That is metal as fuck. And also crazy. Yeah, well, I mean, I was going to say, this is like the coolest part of the movie. The montage of him being like, mm, I don't know if you have what it takes, my boy. And then cutting to them, like, climbing up fucking mountains and wolf skins. This would be the best part of the movie. Also set to Wham's Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Wake me up before you go-go, turning around, flipping up the hood, and it's just a wolf's head. And the wolf's eyes are, like, cockeyed, and, like, the tongue is still there. And then Ranolf finds, like, oh, you, you prankster. Ranolf is standing there, and the guy's, like, climbing up the thing. And he, like, slips a little bit, and it cuts back to Ranolf, and he's like, "Mm mm-mm. And then it does it a few more times, and then finally he gets to the top, and then Ranolf is like, you did it! (laughs) You did it, my boy. I thought you couldn't, but you did it. We have to make this movie that's a biopic about Randall Fiennes as it's like this famous explorer, but it's made like a late 90s rom-com. You think I'm going to say no? Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So... No, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. They did two other expeditions as training just to kind of get in the groove of the various biomes and temperature things that they would be in. One was they did a river boating expedition in British Columbia where they had to go down these like really dangerous three rivers that intersect and, you know, it's like basically a death sentence. But they did it. And then they did the Nile, the world's longest river, right? And that one actually was the most dangerous because you're on it for so long and it twists and turns and there's all these dangerous terrain and there's all these people that are not used to (laughs) motherfuckers just rolling in on little speedboats or whatever. They spent a long time on the Nile. And the Nile was actually the one that would kind of change the way they were doing things because they were going with their team and Randolph Fiennes had hired a photographer to film and take photos of everything. And when they were on the expedition, they had stopped on the side of the Nile and they were meeting these local artisans who were, I don't remember what they were selling, but there was local people who were selling stuff. They were going to stop and take photos with them and talk to them. And the light, the sun was setting, the light, the light was going down. So the photographer poured some oil on the ground in order to set a fire so they could take a photo in front of the fire. And as he was putting the oil there, getting ready to light it, a guy like a few feet away exhaled a cigarette and an ember got onto the oil and lit the photographer on fire. It just like exploded and three fourths of his body were covered in flames in like, you know, a matter of seconds. They've put him to the ground. They, they stamp out all of the flames and everything. And then this guy needs to get the fuck out of there and go to the hospital, and get treated because it's like 120 degrees and shit. So he's going to fucking die like right now. So they need to get him out. And as they're like putting him into a car to take him to the fucking hospital, he like hands Ranolf a camera and goes, all right, my boy, it's all on you. You have to take the photos now. This is the lens pointed at what you want and hit this button. It's actually not that hard to be a photographer. It's zero skill involved. This thing does all the work. You just point it and press a button. I mean, on my deathbed, I'm just going to admit I'm fucking useless. You've paid me 
way too much. They take him to the car. The guy survives. Everything's fine. But that turns out to be a really pivotal moment because from this point on, Renolf finds takes all of the photos for all of their expeditions. Basically, he has multiple ways of monetizing things now. He saves the money on a photographer. He owns the copyright to like a fuckload of these really quote unquote important photos of these barren wastelands or places no one has been. And he also writes books eventually. So he makes money licensing the photos to the publishing companies or National Geographic or whatever. So it's another way to help pay for the expeditions is this photography. And he gets really into it. He gets really good at it. And he's he starts really enjoying it. But initially, he was just like, I don't want to take a fucking photo. I am an adventurer. I want to be in the photo. And then someone's like, well, actually, we have timers. You can just set a timer. Oh, okay. Let's do that. It's kind of like how for my original podcast, NostalgiaCast, we had an engineer who recorded the show for us. And then when we started recording Deep Cuts, you know, I wasn't going to hire an engineer to do it for us. So I just did it myself. And I was like, wait a minute. Why does anybody need an engineer? This is easy. Why would you pay somebody to do this? Yeah, that's just like when I decided that I never wanted to do that. So I let you do it. Well, yeah, but I guess that's why is because usually a podcast is just a bunch of fucking Dave's. I love how you almost said losers and then pivoted. <laughs> no, I, no, the I L, say, dude, no, that, it, you can't lie to me. No, it was, you can't lie no, to me. That L, no, I that L almost escaped. No, I was going like, to say. <laughs> it's just a bunch of L Daves. <laughs> no, it's, I, I wasn't going to say losers. I was going to say lazy motherfuckers. And then I said Daves. Lazy Daves. Laves. Every time you call me, I'm like, oh, hey, la- uh, uh, Dave. You have to like say it when you see my name on the caller ID. You're like lazy motherfucker, lazy motherfucker, lazy motherfucker. That's why. That's why I answer the phone. Mellow yellow, mellow yellow is like a talismanic incantation that like removes the need to call you a lazy motherfucker. Yeah, it's the goose fraba. It's the serenity now of your your existence. So in the early '80s, the planning really took things to the next level for this expedition company, which at this point had been named Transglobal Expeditions. In order to really kick things to the next gear to make sure that they could do it, they went to Greenland in the summer and they started running everybody through extreme challenges to see that they could do it. And I think they went with like 15 people, and by the end of it, it was Ranulf, Ginny, his wife, and three other dudes. Well, that's that's not true. Two other dudes and a woman. And they spent like a ton of time there doing all these weird expedition mini, you know, outdoor training things in negative 25 degrees Fahrenheit. Or maybe it's Celsius. It's probably Celsius because he's so British or Welsh. People are going to get mad if you don't draw that distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Welsh people get very angry when you call them British. So then the next thing they did is they went somewhere else. I don't remember where, but here it was 45 degrees below zero. And this was the first time that they had Gore-Tex. So they were like, this wolfskin shit is terrible. No. So then they upped their gear to Gore-Tex and they're like, all right, I think we're good. I think we can try to do this. From a warmth perspective, it's much better. But from like an awesome metal perspective... It's such a downgrade. Completely agree. We're wearing wolf skins, motherfucker! To like, well, let's put on our Gore-Tex. Yeah. Mm, it's toasty. Yeah, 100% agree. 100% agree. Really, they should have split the difference and all just wore like wolf head hats, like wolf skull hats. But unfortunately, they didn't. They didn't have a creative director, a Kanye West type, who just was around to just be like, what if we just like wore like fucking wolf skulls? 
Well, if it was Kanye, it would be like, well, what if we just wore like KKK hoods? I'm talking about 2010 Kanye. I'm not talking about yay. So they spent close to two years doing all of this. Seven years of planning and then two years of actually doing the Transglobe expedition. They traveled the entire globe without airplanes and went across Antarctica. It's the only time it's ever successfully been done, even to this day. It's fucking crazy. So the two things I want to talk about specifically are there's some stuff with his wife that's really interesting. And then there's some stuff about the amount of time. You know, they would drop them off at X juncture on land and then they would either walk or use vehicles to get from point A to point B and then pick them up on the sea with boats. Like I said, the longest version of that was 18 months. It took them 18 months to cross from one side of Antarctica to the other side of Antarctica, which is wild to me. 18 months. That is a year and six months in the white. Like, that is so crazy. But maybe, you know, if our instincts are correct, maybe Randolph was just at home there. He was like, ah, nothing to ruin this perfect white landscape. Oh, perfect reflection of all of the spectrum of light. That's the only thing I want. Reflect it all. No absorbing. Don't absorb all the colors reflect all if you have to absorb one or two but do not absorb them all under no circumstances the thing that's interesting to me about this though is specifically doing this at this time is that even when i close my eyes it's just white oh god the thing that's interesting to me about this time is that they don't have any sat phones or sat navigation because at this point there were no satellites over antarctica so they have to use like whatever those little like explorer things. With, it's like a magnifying glass on top and like two sticks that come out from the bottom. Whatever that thing is called. Sextants. 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 Yeah. I kept wanting to say trident. And I was like, it's not a trident. What are those things called? In an interview I watched, he said that he had to spend like an hour every day calculating with the use of a sundial and a sextant where they were before they could start walking because they needed to make sure they were going in the right direction. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't have enough food to survive the 18 months and they would die out there. Yeah, I'd be out there like in 800 feet, turn left at the penguin rock. Fucking droning in Uber Eats. It's like, ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> my yeah, wiener yeah. schnitzel is here. So the other thing I want to talk about is Mike Posner, who had that song in like the 2010s that was like, you wear it around like you're cooler than me. You got designer shades. Just- he jogged across the entire country. And it was like a big thing where he's like, I'm doing this thing. I'm, I'm going to run across the country. But like, in reality, he had like a motorhome with all of his amenities that just followed him. He had like a crew. And so every time he would stop, he would just like sleep in his house. Yeah, not as cool. That reminds me of You and a Bike and a Road by Eleanor Davis uh, about the acclaimed indie cartoonist Eleanor Davis and how she biked across the country. And it's really good. She made journal comics every night. And man, some of that shit is brutal. God damn. It's very good, though. Very good. Very good. It reminds me of Straight Story, film directed by David Lynch. It was a true story about a guy. He was an older guy. I forget the details of it. So somebody's listening and being like, fuck, this is what the movie's about. But he wants to go like visit his daughter or something. And he just is poor and he can't make the trip or whatever. So he rides across the country on a riding lawnmower. Oh, wow. How have I not seen this? Which reminds me of the 
Werner Herzog book of Walking on Ice. It's all of his journal entries when his mentor, his film school mentor, got diagnosed with cancer and they thought she was going to die. Uh, he walked from France to Germany and basically was like, she won't die if I'm walking. And so he spent like two months walking to her. And she survived. She didn't die for another decade. Uh, but it's a very good book. Do you got another one that's about people going long distances? Chipmunk Adventure. Oh. The Chippendale movie where they're washed up actors or whatever that I got offered to be in and said no because it was the pandemic. And I was like, I don't want to leave my house. And then immediately regretted it when I saw the movie because I realized it was an animation live action hybrid and I would have been in the fucking movie. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Why didn't I do this? That movie? First of all, yeah, that that. That, that's a good that's a good movie and the scene you would have been in would have been really fun because you would have been in the convention scene with the ugly sonic character but no that's the chip and dale movie i'm talking about alvin and the chipmunks the chipmunk adventure movie from the 80s where in which alvin and the chipmunks and the chipettes get hired by these rich snooty husband and wife to uh go on a contest where they take these little dolls of themselves across the world and like leave them in these different places and they think that it's like some contest but in reality they're diamond smugglers and the chipmunks are helping them smuggle diamonds to all these different places in these little dolls i loved that movie as a kid i completely forgot about it until right now and i'm glad you brought it up go watch it so the next thing i want to talk about specifically is the way that Ginny, his wife virginia finds is kind of moved aside in these stories. All the stories are always about Randolph Fiennes. Ginny co-owns Transglobal Expeditions. She's the one who spent seven years planning and testing and doing all this stuff. He's just like the physical vessel of the guy that goes and does the thing. She's basically the director and he's the star, right? Which is bullshit. But it's not just because she doesn't want to do these things because she went out and did all of the tests with him. She like was in the cold weather and like she was doing it side by side with him until they fully started doing this transglobal the first time going around the globe for everything it was the two of them and three other people one of the other people was a woman and one of the boat captains i think maybe in mozambique was like we can't have these women on board that are unmarried because they were fine with Ginny coming on board because she was married all right fine whatever but the unmarried woman was like this is just going to cause problems. All of our sailor men are going to go crazy trying to woo this woman and it's going to cause a bunch of drama and make things fucking hard. So she almost got booted from the project only because like they couldn't keep their dicks in their pants or whatever, which is fucking bullshit. But again, I guess that goes to show you the logic of the 1970s. And so she went on a whimsical adventure a la the Santa Claus 2 where she has to find a husband in 48 hours. You joke, but that's literally how... They solved the problem. One of the guys, like the captain of the ship, married her. I am the yeah. husband now. I'm the husband now. Yeah. The other thing that this does, though, is that there are certain legs of the journey that Ginny doesn't go on. And in the couple interviews I've watched, it seems like she wanted to, but then didn't in order to not cause drama with these other men, which really fucking sucks. I haven't seen an interview with her where she says that. But that's kind of the implication where like she did everything other than the Antarctica walk because that was 18 months. And they were like, don't don't fucking bring a woman out here, which sucks. That does suck because, I mean, I have no interest in doing any of this shit. So, like, if you were like, you shouldn't come on the Antarctica trip, I'd be like, oh, thank God. 
<laughs> you you have no idea what weight was just lifted off of me. But for her, she obviously was super passionate about this. So not only did she not get to go on this thing that clearly she was really passionate about doing and wanted to do, but also, you know, for the rest of her life, she just wouldn't have that accomplishment or that story in the same way that he had. It's tragic in a way. I mean, I, I don't know the rest of the story, so I don't know if maybe like they get divorced three days after they finish the trip or something like that. No, but they don't. If they stay together, like for the rest of their lives, they could have that experience to recount together in the way that all, you know, couples and friends do of like, remember when we did that and the, the shared history. Which is also crazy because she did everything else. It's not like she just stayed home. She did everything else. She crossed the Sahara Desert. She like went across oceans. She did everything except the Antarctica section, which is like. What happens in Antarctica stays in Antarctica. Yeah, pretty much. Guys, tell my wife that she can't come because it'll be like too hard for the men to resist her or something like that. She'll whatever to say something. And then they cut to them and they're just like, boys night. I mean, you know. That's probably accurate. I feel like Reynolds finds 100% has boys nights in him, you know? Boys 18 months. Yeah. So this launched a massive career for Reynolds Fines. He was hailed as an explorer across the globe when he got back from completing this trans-global expedition. And he basically spent his entire life doing this as well as a bunch of other stuff now. So this kind of launches him on a new trajectory. In 1992, he led an expedition that discovered a lost city, the lost city of Iram in Oman. Uh, Later that year, he became the first person to cross Antarctica unsupported. It took him 93 days, basically meaning he did it again, but with like sleds as opposed to vehicles or anything else. No larger mechanisms to enable him. In 2000, he attempted to walk unsupported and solo across the North Pole, This mission went sideways, though, and his sled fell through a vat of ice into water, and he was forced to pull them out by hand or else he would have starved to death, and he got severe frostbite on his left hand. You you have put yourself through absolute hell, and here in uh, your left hand, you don't have any of the the finished fingers of your left hand anymore. And that was, was, you had to actually medicate yourself for that didn't you? you had to do some chopping yourself for your fingers yeah but that was back in the uk and that was only because my my late wife said i was getting very irritable because touching the mummified fingertips against anything it really was painful um, and they don't operate and amputate properly until five months after the thing happens so in order to stop the pain i bought a black and decker and a <sighs> micro blade and my wife my late wife brought me cups of tea and it took two days to get through the thumb by sort of turning it round. And if it hurt or bled, then you move the saw further away. Oh my God. That is the craziest shit. So it wasn't like, oh, I had to like bite through my fingers like that 127 hours guy or whatever. It was like he did the expedition. He came home. He just had like fucking dead fingers. And he was like, it's taking too long. Bring me the Black and Decker. I'm going to spend two days sawing through my thumb. I love the little detail, too, of like, and then my dearly departed wife, Ginny, brought me some tea. And then I fucking murdered those fingers. God. 
Yeah, it's like, what does the tea have to do with anything? Like, of course, I'm sure you drank something during this fucking three-day hell. It's pretty intense. It's pretty fucking intense. As if this wasn't enough, though, for one person, he also developed a career as an author penning 24 books, both fiction and nonfiction. He also ran for public office multiple times and secured a large amount of votes, but never actually gained a seat. He also committed, and this is the best part here, an act of domestic terrorism to try and stop a Dr. Doolittle movie from being made. If I didn't know that part, because that was the main part that I found out about that inspired us to make this episode, I would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Click that link, baby. I'm going to have you read this article. It's pretty great. Yeah. It basically, it's like his quote starts in the middle. If you could just start at his quote, wherever that is. Unfortunately, while on leave back in the UK in the mid-1960s, I got phoned up by an old Elton friend. He had moved to a place called Castle Combe in Wiltshire, which had been voted Britain's prettiest village. And this beautiful village was being attacked by 20th century fox, who were making a film there called Dr. Doolittle. This involved turning the stream into a dirty great lake with a 20-foot concrete dam ruining the village. My friend decided to bring this outrage to the general attention by blowing up the entire concrete dam the night before the film started. I had just completed an army explosives course where you can learn to blow up as much as you can using as little as possible. And I was pretty good at this, so he asked me to stand in. Unfortunately, everybody was caught. We all ended up in Chippenham Prison, and I was on police probation in Salisbury for six months. Just out here trying to blow up a dam in order to stop the Dr. Doolittle movie from being made. The Rex Harrison one. But they didn't stop it. You can't stop progress, Dave. Can't stop progress. Can't stop, won't stop. He's also the oldest person to have climbed Mount Everest. I mean, I don't even know what else to say about him. Like, at a certain point, don't you just kind of, like, chill out? And the answer for this guy is, fuck no, you don't. Fuck no. It only goes up from the bridge explosions for me. Yeah. And that's not even his greatest accomplishment. His greatest accomplishment is that he's Rafe Fiennes' cousin. He's Voldemort's cousin. Yep. Slash Joseph Fine, the lesser known He's the He was going to be in, this, in the sequel, The Welsh Patient. He was going to star in Shakespeare in Transit. It's a Shakespeare in Love sequel where it's just Shakespeare exploring stuff. He was going to appear in white blackface in that movie about... Michael Jackson and Elizabeth Taylor driving cross country together. That's fucked up. That's a real thing that happened. I know, I know, I know it's a real thing. I know it's a real thing. Post 9-11. So this is the story of Ray Fiennes. He's this weirdo explorer. Randolph Fiennes. Uh, weirdo explorer, raised in South Africa, came back to the UK around 11 or 12, enlisted in the military, married his childhood sweetheart, and then started an expedition company and spent his entire life traveling to the distant corners of the globe doing these weird feats, wrote a bunch of books, ran for public office a few times, tried to blow up Rex Harrison. Yeah. What do you think about Reynolds Fines? Spapa Spicy? It's another one of those like definitive deep cuts topics where it's like, you'd think I would have heard about this. All of the interconnectivity of like very recognizable and well-known things. The fact that he's Ray Fines' cousin, the fact that he's done the only cross Antarctica trek ever, if I'm understanding correctly and the fact that like he tried to blow up the dr doolittle movie like you'd think that we would all be aware of this but i've never heard of any of this stuff until i kind of stumbled across it recently it reminds me of a couple of things the first thing is it's funny to me how 
so many of like the Guinness Book of World Records records are just like things that only one person has ever even tried to do. Years ago, back in 2015 or 2016, my friend, I worked with him at the company I was working at to basically get the world record for longest freestyle rap on a live stream. And so we did this whole live stream uh, and he freestyle rapped for, I think he did 26 hours to get the world record. And it was the world record, but it was also like nobody else had ever attempted to do it. And then like a year later, whenever I left this company and I was working at Super Deluxe, we did it again because Super Deluxe had this really cool live streaming department and we did a lot of cool experimental live stream stuff. And I pitched them on the idea of doing this live stream. And so he did another live stream and he beat his own record by doing like 28 hours straight or something like that. And he he has the certificate for the Guinness Book of World Records. He has the world record, but it's like nobody else ever tried to do that. But what does that even look like? As you're freestyling, at a certain point, does it just become like you're just making noises in order to qualify as freestyling? Like, uh, yeah, uh, 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 yeah. Gonna eat some Cheerios. Uh, yeah. Uh, 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 no, there was, yeah. There was even very doubt me, Cheerios. <clears throat> you know what I mean? There, like, there was very specific rules for what would be considered, you know, an unbroken freestyle. He was permitted multiple bathroom breaks, which he did not ever take. Though he could have stopped and taken a bathroom break. I think he got like three minutes or something like that. But he actually never took the bathroom breaks. So he really did just go full twenty six hours straight. He drank water and smoothies in between like words. And there was a certain length he could pause and not be talking without it ending the freestyle. And also there had to be like two words that rhymed every certain amount of time. There was all these rules about what would be considered a full, you know, unbroken freestyle rap. He had to keep rhyming. And he couldn't like go a certain amount of time without rhyming. Get like 30 seconds or is it like 10 minutes? It wasn't 10 minutes. I don't remember what the timing was. It was a much shorter amount of time. I don't remember specifically, though. It's just funny to me that like when I was a kid, I always thought that the idea of the Guinness Book of World Records was so cool. And then when you when you actually look into what it is, a lot of the world records are just like the longest line of pencils. And it's just somebody that just did this. And it's like, yeah, technically but nobody else ever tried to do this because it's dumb. I feel like I've told this on the show before, but when I was in high school, I was working at a comic book store and there was a guy who was George Romero's former personal assistant who, I don't know if he and Romero had had a falling out or some something had happened where he was no longer involved in the Romero film circle. And so he like rebooted himself as a, as a wrestler and his wrestling name was JB Destiny. And he wanted to set a world record so that he could say world record breaker JB Destiny when he would come in to the ring. That's honestly kind of why Pablo did it as well. He wanted to be like world record breaking rapper, essentially. So like he picked a world record that he thought he could do, which was to kick yourself in the head the most amount of times in one minute. You know, they had a guy come out from Guinness Book of World Records. They stayed to camera. They'd like... They filmed it and he did it in the parking lot of our comic book store. And it was like a big like event, well, big, maybe overselling it. But was it was an event that a bunch of people were at and he did it. I think he kicked himself in the head 60 times, 40 times, whatever it was. You know, I, I don't remember now, but like what a weird thing to do a to try and kick yourself in the head the most amount of times, but also to do it as this like I'm a world record holding fucking guy. I'm a wrestler. Kick myself in the head. 
Yeah, from a marketing perspective of just his goal of being able to say a world record-breaking wrestler, it's smart because it's something that is relatively easy to do so you can break a world record without being, like, really good at something. And it's something that, like, likely nobody will ever try to beat you. Yeah. So you never right, you never right. have to like reclaim your title. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if I wonder if he still holds it, you know, that was a while ago. It'd be so funny if we just broke it just to spite <laughs> just it. Just to fuck with him. <laughs> like nobody has ever tried to do it. And he's been the world record holder for like 15 years and then we just break it just because you told this story. Um, oh my gosh, look at this. He has a entry on the Pro Wrestling Wiki, JB Destiny. There's no information on it though it's just there was a guy named jb destiny there's no bio there's no there's nothing and then a fo- one photo of him we'll give you the entry for kicking yourself in the head but like come on we're not gonna try that hard Be oh my god here we go here we go here we go hit this <laughs> he's got another entry on wrestlingdata.com one where his real name is listed here oh that's right yes so his his real name is here which I am now having all these flashbacks, seeing his real name and pulling comics out of his pull list. But also it lists tag teams that he was in. And apparently JB Destiny was in a tag team with Big Papa Gator and Boomer Payne. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah. I wonder what their tag team team was. Oh, their tag team was just called the 987. That's so funny. I guess that must be the area code from where they all hailed from or something. Pennsylvania, maybe. Wow. Well, there you go. JB Destiny, if you're still out there somewhere, give us a ring. Tell us about your stories on the road as JB Destiny and what it was like to work with George Romero. Do you have any uh, any final thoughts, Papa Spicy? The final thought was just part of it was just that thing about my observation about world records and just how kind of funny that they are. Which almost kind of makes me love them even more, that they're just so, like, stupid and just people, like, doing things that, like, nobody would ever even try to do anyway. The other thought I had was just thinking about the fact that, like, they went across Antarctica and, like, nobody else has done that since. It's crazy when somebody does something that's so difficult and puts so much work, like, planning seven years, and they do something that's just so insanely tedious and difficult that... You'd think that it would be repeated multiple times, but nobody else ever does it again. It's crazy to me that they did something that took so long to plan, was so tedious, was so difficult that just for the rest of history, not a single other person was like, I'm going to try that too. I mean, that seems like a perfect place to stop right there because I am not going to try and walk across Antarctica or the North Pole. So on that note, I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me online, you can do so at heydavebaker.com. You can pre-order my book, Mary Tyler Moorhawk, wherever you get your books. Uh, Spandrew, where can people find you online? You can't find me online because I don't go on the internet. I've, I've just I've dismantled my modem and destroyed it with a bat, all of that scene from Office Space. But if you want to pay your respects to the dear beloved Papa Pricey, you can get his book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye, by going to dapricerights.com. You can follow us on social media, by going to Facebook and searching Deep Cuts Podcast, you can join our Facebook group, the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group, where we talk about the show and make memes. You can join our Discord server go by going to bit.ly.com slash Discord, where we talk about the show, make memes, and play games, and all kinds of other fun stuff. You can follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. You can 
follow me on TikTok because I fucking lied. Uh, obviously, how would I be doing this right now? How would I be talking to Dave if I didn't have the internet? You are so gullible. You're fucking dumb for believing me every time I say this. So you can go to my TikTok at Dead Boy Detective where I make videos and talk about fun stuff. And you can catch our live stream trek across Antarctica, Dave and Spandrew Spice, this February. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.